everyone and welcome to episode number 16 of the Anno Domini podcast, a podcast dedicated to the supremacy of Christ over all things, including our days, weeks, and months. Join me as we explore how Christ is revealed through the cyclical life of the church calendar year. We'll discover how this calendar once structured culture and how it can again. We'll also discuss practical ways to observe and celebrate these holy days in our quest to glorify God and live the good life in the midst of all the good He has given us. It has been over five months since our last episode of the Anno Domini podcast. During those five months, we have been observing the period of the church calendar known as Ordinary Time. We are approaching the end of this period with the coming celebration of Reformation Day and All Saints Day. On these days, we celebrate the life of the church as it has grown in maturity through its Reformation, as well as the lives of those saints that have gone on to glory, the saints from Abel to Zechariah and from Stephen to the present day. The calendar can be divided roughly into two halves. The first half of the church calendar, beginning at Advent, marks the life of Christ and includes celebrations such as Christmas, Epiphany, Easter, Pentecost, those kind of days. During the first half of the church year, we celebrate the life of Christ. This is a season of special days and feasts, a festal or a festive time. The second half of the church year is marked by the ordinal numbers of weeks going back to Pentecost. Now, if you've ever heard of ordinal numbers and cardinal numbers, the big difference between those two numbers is that cardinal numbers denote a number of things. So they say there are three apples in the basket. There are seven books on the shelf. But ordinal numbers signify a position relative to something else. Therefore, last Sunday, October 25th, was the 21st Sunday after Pentecost. This ordinary time that we're in, it's certainly not mundane. It's not boring. It's not forgettable. That's not what ordinary mean. It just simply isn't marked by any feasts. Instead, each Lord's Day is marked with its ordinal position relative to Pentecost. That It's super cool, I think, because while the first half of the church year marks the life of Christ, the second half marks the work of the Spirit given at Pentecost. This is the work of the Spirit as he brings about transformation through the ministry of the church during ordinary time. Now, extraordinary things can happen during ordinary time, which we will soon see. But this leads us into our holiday. What holiday are we celebrating today? Well, it's actually two. We're celebrating two holidays in one podcast. The first one, it's, it's actually these two holidays mark the beginning of the end of ordinary time. The first one is Reformation Day, which will happen on October 31st, and then All Saints Day, which happens on November 1st. Let's go ahead and start 
with Reformation Day. This actually was liturgically observed last Sunday, October 25th. So if you attend a Reformed church, it's likely they referred to it as Reformation Sunday. Often Reformed churches will take the entire month of October to mark the Reformation, but the actual day on the calendar is this Saturday, the 31st. And on Reformation Day, we celebrate the glorious Protestant Reformation that is officially marked as starting on October 31st, 1517. This is the day in history, in the midst of ordinary time, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Within this document, Luther took an extraordinary step of faith by calling out the massive corruption within the Catholic Church at the time. You see, Luther specifically took issue with the church selling indulgences. Now, what are indulgences? Well, basically, believers were promised that if they bought indulgences, that they that those indulgences would get their loved ones out of purgatory and into heaven. Now, this, of course, is high-handed, oppressive, and shameless wickedness to think that you could buy your way into heaven or buy your way out of hell. I mean, uh, the apostle Peter told Simon, your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the Holy Spirit. So this was clear, high-handed wickedness by the Catholic Church. But Luther's extraordinary act of courage began in earnest a protest that had been forming in the Catholic Church for over a century. The Reformation brought to the world the biblical truth that our own merit plays no role whatsoever in our salvation. The idea of meritorious work being essential to salvation was, and unfortunately, is still common within the Roman Catholic Church. Alternatively, clear biblical teaching places grace as the primary means by which salvation is applied. So, let me say that again. Clear biblical teaching places grace as the primary means by which salvation is applied. You see, good works are seen as a result of salvation, not a prerequisite for salvation. You do the good works because you're saved, not to be saved. However, clear biblical teaching was not available at the time of the Reformation, as most, the common people for sure, were not allowed to have access to Scripture. Not only were they not allowed to own it, they weren't allowed to read it, it wasn't allowed to be translated into their own tongue, and often the Mass or the church service was being performed in Latin. So the people would come there, they wouldn't speak Latin, they weren't allowed to read the Scriptures, and probably many of them couldn't read anyways, and so they weren't allowed to access, read, or understand the Word of God at all. This was a travesty, but it all changed when the Reformation spread. The people were given back the Word of God. They were given it back so they could read it and hear it and understand it in their own language. See, many of us are familiar with this story, but I think it's important to note it didn't come about overnight. Martin Luther is certainly the most famous name associated with the Reformation, but there were many that came before him 
who built much of the foundation upon which Luther eventually understood as salvation by grace alone, salvation through faith alone, and by Christ alone. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but Luther didn't just come up with this idea himself. There was much work that had gone on before Luther came along that allowed him to be used by God to move forward in the Reformation of the Church. The second holiday we mark this weekend is All Saints Day. This is a day dedicated to giving thanks for the life and death, and most importantly, the coming resurrection of all those saints who are claimed by and with Jesus in glory. It is a time known as Hallowtide, which includes Hallow's Eve, or evening, and Hallow's Day, or All Saints Day. Hallow means to set apart as holy, but that is when it's used as a verb. When we use the word hallow as a noun, it means saint. This is pretty cool. When we are baptized into Christ, we are sacramentally being set apart and made holy or hallowed as a visible sign of the covenant that is poured out upon us. So in that way, we are the verb, we are made holy, we are set apart. Our baptism signifies us as members of the body of Christ. This makes us both hallowed, set apart, and hallows, or saints. Now, this is a critical distinction as connected with the Protestant Reformation. It's critical because as Protestants, we believe that all those who are baptized into Christ and have put on Christ in faith are already saints. Let me say that one more time. All of those baptized into Christ and put on Christ in faith, those are already saints. This is a stark contrast from the teaching of the Catholic Church then and now. While the Catholic Church taught and still teaches that one must rise to an exceptional level of piety to be considered for sainthood and then bypass purgatory, we, as Protestants, believe that sainthood begins in this life at the moment we are justified by faith through the gracious work of Christ's death and resurrection. So, we are justified by merit. It's just not our merit. It's the merit of Jesus. Christ's accomplished work on the cross is imputed to us, and we are justified by His work, by His grace, and by His power. And because of that, our status as saints is secure because it was the work of Christ, and Christ's work is perfect work indeed. So therefore, Hallowtide, which is kind of like tide is like time, so sometimes you hear Christmas tide, Christmas time, Hallowtide, Hallowtime, it means saints' time, or a time to recognize and to be thankful for the saints who have come before us. Now, we rejoice with the saints. We do not worship or pray to them. Those with Christ do not need our prayers, nor do they want us to pray for them. So this holiday originally began to be celebrated in the 4th century, and it seems like it was uh, made to—it was originally created to honor the many Christians who had been martyred for their faith in Jesus. And the biblical—this is important. So we have Hallow Eve, and we have Hallow's Day, or Hallow's All Saints Day. And it's important to remember what that term Eve means. The biblical day began on the preceding evening. So when you were celebrating the Sabbath, the, the observance of the Lord's Day would begin at sundown. The sun would go down, and it would be the beginning of the Sabbath. And then the sun would go down the next day, and that would be the end 
of the Sabbath. So a holiday such as Christmas Eve or Hallow's Eve actually begin on the eve or evening before the actual day. Now, I don't know about you, but this would have been very useful knowledge to know as a kid, uh, you know, when you're excited for Christmas morning, but Christmas morning can't come soon enough. Well, you could have just told, I could have just told my parents, hey, it's Christmas Eve, Christmas has already begun. So we, of course, are familiar with Hallow's Eve, or as the Scots dialect pronounces it, Een, Hallow's Een. So Halloween didn't used to be a holiday glorifying violence and Satanism, but instead was the beginning of the All Saints Day celebration. In fact, it's said, I'm not totally sure if it's true, but it's said that in the Anglosphere, that'd be the, the sphere of Anglo-Saxon people, it has been said that All Saints Day began to be celebrated on November 1st in the 8th century. In the time that it was chosen, the reason why November 1st was chosen was it was chosen as an answer to the common pagan fears that would spring up every year amongst the unconverted tribes of England, Scotland, and Ireland. You see, fall and winter were seen as wicked times when evil forces would rule the cold, dark nights. All Saints Day was an answer of hope to a fearful community. Now, that may or may not be true. I've heard, I've heard arguments for both sides, but, but really, this is Christianity taking dominion over a fallen world. You see, we actually have the answers to the fears of life. This is very important, especially in our day and age. We have the answers to the fears of life. We live in an age that is absolutely paralyzed by fear. And as the body of Christ moves through this world, we can have the greatest impact by having courage and trusting Jesus and not being afraid when others are. Now, the distinction of Halloween, or Hallow's Eve, uh, has been lost on most of us, but Halloween used to be a day filled with laughing at the darkness. We would laugh at the darkness, smiling at the future, and it was a joyful anticipation of the coming glorious resurrection of the church triumphant. You know, so those of us, uh, a quick definition now, those of us still living are the church militant. We have been tasked with battering down the gates of hell. That's why we're the church militant. But those who have died in Christ are the church triumphant. And we are told in Hebrews that they, the church triumphant, are a great cloud of witnesses that are encouraging us, the church militant, to run with perseverance and to throw away anything that slows us down, anything that slows us down from bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So Halloween used to be that. We would, we would, we would use Hallow's Eve and Hallow's Day as a time to, to be encouraged in the faith of the church triumphant and the church militant, and to know that the resurrection of the body was coming. And it was never a time to uh, glorify violence and Satanism. That, that is all the, the corruption of a culture, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I want to talk about I want to connect, if I could, the Reformation with the saints. Now, that's not exactly a, a stretch to do. Uh, obviously, um, the Reformation was brought about by the saints of Christ. But one of those saints who faithfully worked to bring God's kingdom on earth, he actually came a hundred years before Martin Luther. And, and you may have heard his name before, um, but he was a saint. He was a reformer, and his name was John Huss, or Hus. Hus, which means goose in Bohemian, 
was a Catholic priest in the area that is now known as the Czech Republic. Uh, Hughes preached fiercely against indulgences. He was, he was, um, uh, Martin Luther ended up being a man after Hughes's own heart because he preached fiercely against indulgences. He also taught that the church was founded upon Christ and not the Pope. The Pope was not the, the rock upon the, the church. Christ was the rock. He also taught that Christians were to obey God and not men. Now, these things, these are ideas uh, that they seem pretty common to us as Protestants now, because we're, you know, several hundred years into the Reformation. But at the time, when the Word of God was locked away by the church, these ideas were revolutionary. Uh, and you want to know one of the things that's very interesting about Hughes is that he wrote out six glaring errors that he saw the Catholic Church committing. And you know what he did with those? He nailed them to the church doors of Bethlehem Chapel. Who does that remind you of? Well, the church, of course, was furious and excommunicated Hughes immediately. This excommunication was not enforced, though, and Hughes continued to preach openly and, in fact, grew um, very much in popularity. His sermons would draw these enormous crowds because he was truly preaching something good and something new, the good news. So then the church, the council uh, of the Catholic Church, notices that Hughes is growing in his uh, authority and in his influence, and so they did something pretty sneaky and underhanded. They invited Hughes to defend his ideas, promising him both safe passage to and from Constance, Germany, where the Council of Constance was being held. So when Hughes arrived at his meeting, he was immediately arrested and sentenced to death. Now, it's, it seems fairly likely that Hughes knew this was likely to happen because before he left, he actually wrote out his will. Um, but when he was tied to the stake and surrounded with kindling, he was given a chance to recant his teaching, to go back on his teaching, to basically say, I didn't mean it. And it would have saved his life, or supposedly it would have saved his life. But instead, listen to what he said. This is John Hughes about to be burned alive, he says, quote, I would not for a chapel of gold retreat from the truth. Today you burn a goose, but in 100 years a swan will arise which you will prove unable to boil or roast. Close quote. Now, it seems unlikely that Hughes actually prophesied uh, Hughes member meaning goose, it seems unlikely that Hughes actually prophesied the coming of the swan of Martin Luther. Uh, that may have actually even been something that uh, Martin Luther invented himself. But the swan that did came come, of course, was Martin Luther, who, following in Hughes's footsteps, nailed his 95 theses to the church doors in Wittenberg. In this way, celebrating the Reformation and All Saints Day back-to-back is an exercise in thankfulness to the graciousness of God. God preserved his word and his people through one of the darkest periods of church history, and he advanced his kingdom during this dark time through the blood of the martyrs. During our biblical section of the Anno Domini podcast, we generally look at scripture from the lectionary. Now, the lectionary, if you're not familiar with it, has an Old Testament reading, a psalm, an epistle, and a gospel reading. And every Sunday, you have four different 
passages, which, of course, everyone in the Christian church is reading. So there's a lot of unity in following the lectionary. But there's something interesting that I wanted to bring to your attention. Both Reformation Day and All Saints Day share an interesting oddity that no other holiday carries. Here's the interesting oddity. Instead of an Old Testament readings, both days carry passages from Revelation. On the 52-week calendar, this is the only time it happens. So the passages that we're going to look at, instead of an Old Testament reading, they've been replaced by this uh, Revelation chapter 7, which of course is in the New Testament. So the passage we're going to look at is Revelation chapter 7, and it's verses 9 through 17 that we're actually going to read, but the context of verses 2 through 8 is emphasized in the lectionary. They actually put them in parentheses to show you that you need the context of verses 2 through 8 to understand the context, uh, to understand uh, verses 9 through 17. So I'm going to read through this. Now, once again, this is Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. This is the very Word of God. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them, and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Close quote. The very Word of God. Now, the context that's so important here that came just before this, starting with verse 2, is that the remnant of Israel that had just been numbered, you, you're probably familiar with it, Israel had, for the most part, apostatized, and yet from each tribe there had been preserved a remnant, 12,000 in each tribe that had, been, that had remained faithful. This 144,000 were sealed in Christ, but they were a small minority of God's chosen people as they could be counted. This, of course, is set against the next section, which is the new Israel, a multitude which no one could number from every nation in whom all the promises of God have found their yes and amen. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in this new multitude, the church. This church is the whole world perfected. It's the final goal of the mission of Christ that the world should be saved through him, as the Gospel of John chapter 3 tells us. I believe this passage is chosen, this, this passage in Revelation chapter 7, I believe it's chosen against an Old Testament passage because this passage is describing 
all of the eschatological promises of the Old Testament up until this point. The saints, both the faithful remnant of Israel and the new Israel, the church, have been grafted together, just as Romans 11 tells us. It's been grafted together into one tree to share in the new heaven and the new earth. Both Reformation Day and All Saints Day can be intensely practical. For Christians, Christ is supreme and not popular culture. This is why merely providing alternatives to the degeneracy surrounding Halloween is not enough. And let's let's face it, Halloween oftentimes is just full of degeneracy. But it's important for us to remember that Christ isn't a plan B or an alternative to sin. He's the king. He's the captain. He's not just something you should do instead of what you really want to do. So we should be really careful not to merely create cheap imitations of what the world offers. We see this a lot in Christian music. Christians, uh, they can't make the dirty music that the world makes, and so they make cheap imitations of the dirty music that the world makes. So remember, this is, this is very practical. Remember first that the world is the one offering the counterfeit, and Christians have the real, everlasting answer. We've got the real McCoy. So when we imitate the world, we are literally imitating an imitation. It would be like taking margarine and imitating margarine. See, margarine is an imitation of butter. And so we don't want to be the kind of Christian that takes the world's version of butter, which is margarine, and says, ooh, that's kind of edgy. I don't want to be edgy, though, so I'll just go ahead and imitate what they're doing. They're imitating the real thing. So we don't want to imitate an imitation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So we must first understand that Christ is king, and then we will know not to engage in the world's twisted sense of pleasure. So let's bring in some, some C.S. Lewis. Screwtape letters. Screwtape is the demon, or he's the master tempter in the Screwtape letters. And he knew this. He actually writes about this when he's writing to Wormwood. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you. Now, remember, he's the demon talking to another demon, and so everything is internally consistent with the thought of a demon. So this is what he writes, and he's speaking about God. Quote, He's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade, or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out at his sea... There is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. Close quote. What Screwtape understood there is that God is a, is a hedonist at heart. He wants his people to have pleasures forevermore, but not pleasures that they seek, the pleasures that he has for them. We are told that if we seek after God, that he will give us the desires of our heart. That doesn't mean he gives us whatever we want. It means that he changes our heart's desires into his desires. 
And so when God moves in history, as he most certainly did during the Reformation, we ought to respond with a hearty and jolly amen. And we should have nothing to do with aping foolishness and twisted imitations of pleasure that the world offers. We should have nothing to do with it. Now, that being said, there's certainly nothing wicked about dressing up and going door to door to ask for candy. Carving pumpkins, brewing spice ciders, and bobbing for apples are all good and right pleasures that God has given us to enjoy, and we should enjoy them knowing that Christ is seated firmly on the throne. Now, James Jordan has a wonderful article on this that he wrote back in the 90s. It's edifying to me each time I read it, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And he he goes into a lot more detail on a Christian's response to celebrating Halloween. And it can definitely be done, and it ought to be done wisely. Uh, one tradition my family has done the past two years is on Reformation Day to read through or generally it's just to read some of the 95 Theses. And you should do it too, it's a hoot. No one can write quite like Martin Luther. He had a real gift. From the practical side of All Saints Day, I think it's helpful to think about our own mortality on All Saints Day. And cemeteries are a great place to do this. If you know of saints who are buried in your local cemetery, go and visit their graves and be thankful for them and the life that they lived and the fact that they're with Jesus now. You see, Christians don't often understand this, or we oftentimes miss this, but burial is a gift that Christianity gave the world. While the pagan world has always burned their dead in funeral pyres, they don't have hope, so they have no hope in a resurrection, so they burn their bodies. Christians, filled with the hope of resurrection, have built gardens filled with the planted seeds of men and women and children who have gone before us. And these seeds, these man and woman and children seeds in these man gardens are patiently awaiting the resurrection. That's a gift from Christianity. And so when Jesus comes again, it is said that he will come from the east. And that's why the old, really cool cemeteries... Uh, if you can find them, that we don't have a lot out here on, in the Pacific Northwest, but on the West Coast, there's not a lot. But, but these cemeteries, these old cemeteries, they would place all of the headstones facing east, and they would bury their dead with their feet facing east. And the reason why they did that was that when Jesus comes again, and he comes in the east, the dead will rise and immediately will be facing his return. It's symbolic, of course, but, but that symbolism gives us hope, that our hope is in the resurrection and not just simply going to heaven when we die. Going to heaven when we die is important. That is obviously still where our, where the, our first hope lies. If we die today for those in Christ, we go immediately to be in the presence of Jesus, and that is, that is pure paradise. Ultimately, our lives will be bound up in the new heavens and the new earth. And the symbolism of burying our dead, awaiting the day of resurrection, is an embodiment of the hope that one day we will be resting in peace, Jesus will come again, and the dead will be raised unto life eternal. For our music portion of this episode, I chose a classic hymn, written in 1864 by William Walsham Howe, and it's titled, For All the Saints. Often hymns, both old and new, speak of going to heaven when you die, 
as though heaven is our final home. And as we just talked about in the last segment, heaven is not our final home. The resurrected body, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new body is our final home. So scripture, scripture speaks of something else. It speaks of our life being a seed that, when planted in the ground, waits patiently for the day when it will rise again. What springs forth from the ground isn't the same thing that went in the ground, and yet it really does spring forth. It goes into the ground a kernel and rises a beautiful plant. What rises is totally unlike the seed, and yet totally connected with the kernel that came before it. One cannot have the beautiful plant without the death and burial of the seed. So in this analogy, those who have gone on to be with Jesus are the kernel in the ground. Their spirits are in the presence of Christ, and to, and to them, just as Paul promised, to them to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So for those who have died, they are in the presence of Christ, and it is their gain. But they too are looking forward to the day when their own natural body will, just like that kernel, rise out of the ground and be resurrected and glorified. This, of course, coincides with the return of Christ. When Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, all flesh will rise. And when he comes again, when he returns, he will unite heaven and earth, and the gospel will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's a promise straight out of Isaiah. So this hymn, For All the Saints, beautifully encapsulates this eschatological glory. So let's hear the words. Verse 1, For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia. Alleluia. You were their rock, their fortress, and their might. You were their captain in the well-fought fight. And in the darkness drear, you were their one true light. Alleluia. Alleluia. O may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, Fight as the saints who nobly fought of old, and win with them the victor's crown of gold. Alleluia. O blessed communion, fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine, yet all are one in thee, for all are thine. Alleluia. Alleluia. And when the fight is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song, and hearts are brave again, and arms are strong. Alleluia. The golden evening brightens in the west. Soon to faithful warriors come their rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise the blessed. Alleluia. Alleluia. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The king of glory passes on his way. Alleluia. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl stream in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Alleluia. Verse 1 speaks of the saints of the church triumphant and the rest they now enjoy. Why do they enjoy this rest? Well, because they confessed and trusted Christ in their life. Now, this includes everybody from Abel to the present day. Everyone who will be with Jesus trusted in Jesus. Abel, Moses, Noah, David, they trusted in Christ before they knew his name. We trust in Christ because we know his name, but the name of Christ will be blessed forever because of the rest that the saints have because they trusted in him. 
Now, verse in verse 2, Jesus is the focus. He was and is the rock, or the foundation of the church. He is the fortress, a hiding place. He is our might, because we are weak and he is strong. He is the captain of the fight of the church militant. So the church militant is fighting. He's our captain. And in the dreary darkness of the shadow of death, he is our one true light. Now, verse 3. The church militant prays for faithfulness, truth, and courage as we seek to fight as those now in the church triumphant. While we are breathing, and for as long as we are breathing, we are fighting for a crown of salvation. And so we're praying in verse 3 for endurance in this fight. Now, verse 4, we aren't able to see, hear, or feel those in the church triumphant, but we still have fellowship with them. We still have communion with them. We are feeble and we struggle. They are in glory and are shining with Jesus. And yet, even though there is such a stark contrast between the church militant and the church triumphant, we are all one in Christ because we all belong to Christ. Now, verse 5 is the church militant should expect struggle. We should expect strife and warfare up until the day we die. And when that day approaches and we hear the distant triumph song, we know that we are moving into eschatological hope, a time when hearts will again be brave, because now we struggle with fear, and a time when our arms will again be strong, while now our bodies are weak, but Christ is strong. Soon we will be like Jesus when we see him face to face, having brave hearts and strong arms. Verse 6, this is the point, the golden evening brightening in the West, when a saint is called from this earthly life and enters into the rest of paradise. This is the time that we are, that we die. Saints are promised this will be a time of sweet, calm, and repose. Not necessarily the act of dying, but when we do die, we go to be with Jesus, and we're promised that the time with Jesus in paradise will be sweet, calm, and repose. We'll be with Jesus, and for those who have battled long and hard in this world, this will be a blessing bigger than we can possibly imagine now. This is the state of all those who have died. They are now, right now, with Jesus, in his presence, and in paradise. But there is so much more to come. Just wait till we get to verse 7. Uh, unfortunately, this hope is the hope that many, if not most, hymns stop at. It is a hope. If you die today and you and, and you are claimed by Christ, you will go to heaven to be with him, and that is hope. But they stop at it. They stop at just going to heaven when you die. They see going to heaven when you die as the final place for believers, but it's not. Listen to verse 7. Verse 7 changes all of that. But lo, or but look, it says, there is a much more glorious day breaking. The saints are triumphantly rising in bright glory. Why are they rising in bright glory? Because the king of glory has returned and is passing on his way to defeat the last enemy of all, death itself. Alleluia. Verse 8 is the final eschatological hope of this earth. Rather than the world perishing in an ash heap, we believe that Jesus came to save the world. The pagan world can believe that the earth is going to end in 12 years. Christians are different. We believe Jesus came to save the world. We are told that from all over the earth, from the farthest oceans to the farthest coasts, will come a countless host, a countless multitude, like we read in Revelation 7. They'll come through gates of pearl. And what will this multitude be doing? 
They'll be praising Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Before we play an original setting of this hymn, I would like to say that I am concluding the Anno Domini podcast in its current format with this episode. This doesn't mean the podcast will go away, but rather that the format will shift. The beauty of the church calendar is that within just a few short days, we will begin again where we started, with the advent of Christ. Instead of continuing in this format, I am shifting my emphasis onto a related but different topic, a topic of church planting. The Anno Domini podcast is not the only podcast I'm working on. In January of 2020 of this year, I and several other families began meeting with the desire to plant a distinctly Reformed church in Lewis County, Washington. We've met over 20 times since January, and all of them have been recorded. The podcast is called Reformation Roundtable, and you can find it on iTunes if you want to listen. Now, the point of the podcast is very uh, provincial, or it's very related to the province in which we find ourselves. I want those in my province or parish, the local people, community, to listen to this discussion on Reformed theology and to join us in our vision to plant such a church. This is going to be my main focus over the next year or years, and so I won't be able to give this podcast, at least in its current format, the same level of attention I have up to this point. But stay subscribed, though, because I'm going to continue to put out episodes highly emphasizing the Psalter and hymnody. I already have one planned for the last Sunday of the church year, November 22nd, so stay tuned for that. But with that, I will say goodbye, and I will play for you this original setting of For All the Saints. It'll also have an accompanying video in the show notes, which won't go live until November 1st. This podcast is going to go live on Friday, October 30th, or maybe Thursday, October 29th, depending on when the feed goes out. But the video for All the Saints is going to go live on November 1st. I'll post it in the show notes at joestout.org. And at that, at that location, you'll find the video. You won't want to miss the video because it's going to be pretty special. Uh, I want to also just say thank you to everyone who has stayed with me during this last liturgical year. I, I really can't wait to start again. I hope you guys are blessed this coming new liturgical year. In just a few short days, we get to begin celebrating the advent of Christ into a dark world, and the beauty of the church calendar will come Again, full circle, just as God's grace is never-ending, so the church calendar will continue to go until the Lord returns. For all the saints who from their labors rest with thee by faith, before the world confess thy name, O Jesus, before And their might you were the captain in the well-fought fight in the darkness trick were their one true light Alleluia Alleluia Oh may thy soldiers faithful true and bold fight as the 
Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Alleluia. 